far. Our lesson tonight, we'll be looking at the topic of biblical inspiration. Now I can tell you this will be just the hem of the garment. Uh, there is a ton of material out there about Bible or biblical rather inspiration. Uh, one of the sources in which I was uh, using just one source had about 180 pages. We're not going to be doing all that this evening. Uh, so there's uh, no doubt many, many aspects of this we could be looking at. Uh, I have really just picked a few for us to consider when we think about biblical inspiration. And one of the reasons I bring it up is because I think we forget the encouragement we can find when we think about biblical inspiration. We think about what it means that the Bible being inspired and how we can find encouragement from that and how we can know that we are doing that which is good and pleasing and right in the sight of God. And so I want to first begin by defining a few terms. We'll be looking at a lot of different terms throughout uh, our lesson this evening. Uh, some of these are from the, from, from the Greek or some are from other languages. Uh, talking about where words are derived, and no doubt I won't be able to pronounce them correctly, not surprisingly. But let's begin with our first term, and the term we want to consider first is simply the term concerning uh, inspiration. The term inspiration, the word inspiration is, de is derived from a Latin uh, word, which means to breathe upon or into something. And you have there that word in Latin, which I can't pronounce it, but it is, that's where this uh, Greek or our word for inspiration is derived from. It means literally to breathe upon or into something. And there are several terms, again, like we're going to be looking at. But when we think about inspiration, one of the reasons we want to talk about that is simply based upon one of the main scriptures we consider when we talk about inspiration is 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, right? Particularly verse 16, which tells us all scripture is given by what? Given by inspiration. And so we want to remember what this means. It means to breathe upon or into something. We'll look a little more deeper into that here in just a moment. Another term for us to consider is the term enthusiasm, which is interesting to think about how or what this might mean pertaining to uh, inspiration. Well, this word is derived from the Greek and carries the notion of being possessed by a god. And this idea gained popularity from religious uh, subjectivism, and that simply means that it's a theory that limits knowledge to subjective experience. And here someone say, well, you know, I had this experience, or I feel like God has laid something on their heart, and they kind of put an emotional experience with it. That's really what we're talking about. Uh, many times today, they, they related to an experience. I, know, I remember one uh, one person who, when I was a little kid, he's one of my friends, and he, he I remember how it came up, he said his grandmother told him that she saw this this vision in the kitchen one day. Of course, back then, I had no idea what she was talking about, and today I have no idea what she was talking about. But we do know what the Bible says about such things, what the Bible says about how God reveals himself to us and his will to us today. And that is not a way which he does it today. Uh, but uh, no doubt she based her interpretation and the, the idea of inspiration upon her experiences regarding, or her supposed experiences regarding uh, such things. And this third term is related very closely to our first one, and this means God-breathed, which is translated inspired by God. 
And the only time it's used is, is in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, there in inspiration of God. It means literally God breathed. Now, when, if you were to bring up the topic of inspiration, which probably is not one that's brought up a whole lot in Bible studies many times, we talk, we're trying to talk to someone about salvation and ultimately lead up to that. We don't always start with inspiration. Maybe we're talking to someone who is an atheist and doesn't believe in the Bible what, at all. Then yes, we probably will, will talk about inspiration at some point. But inspiration is not a topic that would come up, you might say, in just everyday conversation. But I want us to consider also, to think about these three terms, I want us to think about three other things for us to consider, and that's the doctrine, the doctrinal definition of inspiration. And what I mean by doctrinal definition, and there's really three things I want us to consider, and if you're familiar with this topic, you'll recognize where we're going by our first one here, and that is what's called divine causality. This means, this, this idea is the idea that the prime mover inspiration is God. Well, that would be correct, right? The prime mover inspiration is God, which means everything when it comes to being inspired is coming from God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 21, we have this very same idea. For prophecy never came by the will of man, the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, it came from God. Inspiration does not begin with man. Man is involved in the revealing of inspiration, what God has inspired, but man is not the one who is giving that inspiration. God moved and the prophet, the prophet mouthed the truth, you could say, that God revealed and, and, and God revealed and man recorded his word. The Bible is God's word and that it originates with him, <clears throat> with him. Is authorized by him, even though it is articulated or is spoken by men. God speaks in their written record, which means everything goes back to God, right? He's the one who spoke these things out, or breathed these things out, and these prophets, these men of God, are the ones who actually spoke those words for men to hear and for men to also write down those written records. And so that's divine causality in a very uh, much a, a nutshell there. The second thing we want us to cons- want to consider when we think about this doctrinal definition is prophetic agency. That is the idea that the prophets played an important role in the overall process of inspiration. They they were the means by which God spoke. Well, that is also accurate. God spoke to the prophets numerous times in the Old Testament. We also know that through the Holy Spirit and in Acts 2 that God would speak to uh, the apostles as well. And so God many times spoke directly to men. Uh, the Word of God was written by men of God. God used persons to convey His propositions. That is, He used men to speak those things out. Many times we say, we talk about a prophet, we mean there are the mouthpiece for God. Preachers or evangelists are referred to as uh, heralds, that is, they are to herald the word, the, the word of God. Not their own word, but the word of God. So God is the uh, primary cause, uh, and the prophets are the secondary causes. Thus, the divine influence does not restrict human activity, but rather enable the human authors to speak the divine message accurately, meaning they were not robots, like we talked about this morning, right? When God, even though they were inspired of God, they still had free will. That's why you think about the gospel accounts, why they talk much about the same thing. 
but they also talk about different things, and they focus on different things. Why? Because their personalities and their characteristics remained in place. They still spoke on behalf of God by their recording of their, those events, but their viewpoint, their personalities came out in those things. And so, prophetic agency. The next one we want to think about here is the scriptural authority. Scriptural authority. God spoke to the prophets in his speaking, <clears throat> excuse me, in his speaking in their writings. The cause of inspiration is God. The means is the men of God. And the end result is the word of God in the language of men. It comes from God, it's spoken through men, and is what is written down for us today. The end result is the word of God in the language of men. I mean, we are able to still read God's word and know what he wants us to do today. Inspiration, then, is the process by which divine causality works through the human prophets without destroying their personalities and styles to produce authoritative and inerrant writings, which means they were able to keep their personalities, still record the words of God, and do so accurately. Do so accurately. Inspired men of God were able to maintain their personalities, and no doubt some of them have some very strong ones. But they still conveyed God's word. You know, you think about that very first gospel uh, message, not the first gospel message, but the one the day of Pentecost there in Acts 2, when Peter spoke, did he have his own personality in there? Yes. His message and the way he delivered it was based upon his personality, but the message came from God because what he spoke to them was simply the word of God, recalling certain events and cutting to the heart of those men using God's word but doing so in his own style, so to speak. Another thing we want to think about when we think about the biblical inspiration, or biblical inspiration, is the scriptures have divine characteristics. They have divine characteristics. What we mean by that is this, their characteristics are beyond the ability of humans to produce. The first thing we want to think about is the perfect unity of the Bible. The perfect unity of the Bible. We know it's written by 40 different men. And I have here some types of men on this next list here. You'll see there kings, priests, scribes, a farmer, a fisherman, a tax collector, prophet, a tent maker, a soldier, a physician, a shepherd, or shepherds rather, a royal cupbearer, a slave, a politician, some would look at Moses being political, uh, a rancher, evangelist, and brothers of Christ, all spoke, but all spoke, and their words were recorded in perfect unity, which means they did not contradict. Did they speak about different things? Yes. Did they teach different aspects of the gospel at different times? Yes. But did they contradict? The answer has to be no. Because a contradiction would imply that they were able to teach something that was different from what someone else has taught and still be approved of in the sight of God. The Bible does not do that. Denominations do. The Bible does not. Thus, they maintained unity. Over 1,600 years and writing in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in Greek. So something that men are not able to do. You think about how many books have been written on the exact 
same topic by men and how much different they are. Not just their styles, but their material. How much different it is and how they will contradict one another. That's not the case with the Bible. There are no contradictions. The next point we want to consider is the idea of the content. That is what's included and what's not. How many, how many times have you gone to a bookstore or maybe a library and you see a section, a section of books that's dedicated to one singular topic? And there are numerous books. Sometimes it's written by one author and there's volumes of one singular topic. How many topics does the Bible cover? To be honest, I have no idea how many in number, but I know there's a wide range of topics, isn't there? Just in the book of Genesis, there's a wide range of topics. And that's just the first book. If men try to write a write on a singular topic, what is it? Well, it looks a lot bigger than the Bible. It's a lot thicker. And they can barely maintain the ability to write on one singular topic in that. But the Bible, we find it in numerous topics. Man writes a book on one topic and it's longer than the Bible. And multiple volumes are often required. But God's Word covers a variety of topics and yet is a, manage, is a manageable size. What I mean by that is, we have, I have one in my office. If I wanted to, I could put it in my back pocket. Why is that? Because it is a book that covers numerous topics, but does so in a manageable way. It is brief where it needs to be brief, and it is deep where it needs to be deep, right? See, many times we think about this today. I remember one, I don't remember who said it. Uh, they were recounting what someone else had said, and they said, you know, don't you wish that God had said a lot more about marriage and divorce? It makes you think, don't you wish you just would pay more attention to what God said about marriage and divorce? See, we don't need more about it. We just need a better understanding of it. And that goes with any topic. People might say, well, don't you wish God spoke more about the family? Does he really need to? I mean, even Christ, when he, during his earthly ministry, asked the question, have you not read? Which means you should already know this. And the Bible, as we know, it wasn't even complete at that time. Which Christ is saying there. God has already said more than enough. You should know this already. So God's Word covers a wide variety of topics and yet is a manageable size, something that mankind struggles with mightily. Another point to consider is scientific foreknowledge. And I'm, I just picked one out that I enjoy the most because there's a lot of them. When you go to the Old Testament, especially when you talk about health and cleanliness, the Bible is the one that sets the standard for it. Mankind later comes along much, much later and, and mimics a lot of the same things, but the Bible sets out the, really the standard for it. And the example I want to point out is Leviticus chapter 12 talking about the circumcision on the eighth day. Because the question we'll ask today, when is a child circumcised today? Very soon after they're born, right? But why on the eighth day in the Bible? Well, on the eighth day, if you find Leviticus 12 and verse 3, is when a certain, actually when two things happen. One, the vitamin K becomes the highest and prothrombin is produced at its highest point. I forget the number, but it's much more significant than any other time. It's produced between days five and eight, if I believe, uh, if I remember correctly. And day eight being the, the highest, and so that was the chosen day. Because the prothrombin allows the blood to clot more quickly. 
And after the eighth day, it begins to it decreases and levels off. But after actually on the eighth day, it's above 100%. I think it's 150% or something, maybe higher than that. Scientific foreknowledge. How did they know that? Well, they didn't. Today, when a child is circumcised, they give them a shot so they can make sure they're going to clot and don't bleed excessively. It's the only way they can do it. Otherwise, they have to wait until sometime between days five and eight before they do that. Otherwise, it would be very difficult to do so without being very uh, risky doing so. But scientific foreknowledge, just in that one aspect, why wait the eighth day? Because that's the best time to allow that blood to clot. Some lessons for us to think about today. Again, this is not a lesson that's designed to cover everything about inspiration. Like I said before, we're just hitting some high points that I just simply picked out because there's a lot of stuff there. But as I said before, man is incapable of creating a similar book when we look at the Bible. You go to the self-help section many times, we fail to realize when you go to those sections, and maybe we just we just forget. Those books are written to sell, aren't they? <laughs> Under the guise of wanting to help them, but they're written to sell. You know, something is, even though it's truthful and would help an individual, it may not be a book that is sellable, right? Why do you think brethren who write books meantime, you don't find them in Barnes & Noble because Barnes & Noble views those types of things as unsellable, even though they'd be more profitable than most of the books in those bookstores. And so we think about man creating a similar book, well, it's impossible. Man's self-help books are flawed as they are based on a lower standard and lack the wisdom that the Bible contains. And that's putting it mildly, isn't it? You know, I like to prove some books when I go into those bookstores, and sometimes I'll pick one up that's got an interesting name, and you flip through it, and you find a chapter, and you think, well, that's what they say about that. And you flip through, and you read a couple passages, and you think, boy, no wonder the world is the way that it is, right? The wisdom is not in line with a true, godly, righteous, and even a helpful standard. Man's books are written to sell. God's book was written to save, right? Starts with the same letter, but it has a different purpose. One was written to save mankind. God's word is righteous and holy. Unlike the books of men, God's word is righteous. As we were reminded in Psalm 19 and verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's what we find in God's word are his judgments. And they are true and righteous altogether, which means they are right, they are good, they are beneficial. In fact, you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 16. You're looking there, he tells us here, Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, All scriptures given by inspiration of God, which means it was breathed out by God. <coughs> that the word of God is actually... God did not breathe, breathe upon words and make them inspired. He, the idea there, he actually breathed out his word. He spoke, and these words were recorded. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. One writer pointed out and asked a question. He said, is the Bible inspired because it's profitable, or is it profitable because it's inspired? Well, the latter would be correct, isn't it? It's profitable because it's inspired. And it's, and it's inspired by God, not by man. 
It's profitable because of where it comes from, because of its origin. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. There is no other book on earth that can say those things and be correct. Verse 17, that a man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. No other book can do that. No other book can thoroughly equip mankind, giving him all that we need. You know, the Bible isn't even really that long in comparison to some books that are out there today, but it provides more help in more ways than any other book we can even possibly begin to imagine. Every area of life is addressed. Every situation is seen, whether it be on principle or literal, and they are addressed within God's Word. No other book can make that claim. Man's books are based, are based on what makes you happy, not necessarily what will help, will actually help you become a better person. Again, man's books are written to sell. God's book was written to save. If you think about biblical inspiration, we think about how the Bible, as we have it today, originated with God, breathed out by God, spoken by man, and recorded by man, preserved by the will of God, so that we still have it today. If you ever go back and you look at how many copies of the Bible have been found, that is, ancient copies and writings of it, you compare those to other ancient books, it makes the ancient books seem as if they're not even worth looking at. Some of those ancient books, their, their, their findings, their, their ancient findings of those things and copies are in the single digits. And they're held, they're held as just being incredible. You know, books, you know, by Homer and Shakespeare and others, and they're, they're held by many as being extremely important. And yet we find ancient writings and recordings of the Bible, Old Testament Scripture, New Testament Scripture, and the hundreds, I think probably more than that. And it's still questioned by many today. And it's not questioned because in doubt of doubt that it's real. It's questioned because of its contents, isn't it? You know, Shakespeare and his writings, well, you have you feel about them, doesn't really matter. They don't save mankind, nor does the writings of anyone else. God's Word directly addresses the lifestyle of man and the problems therein. No other book does so in that way, ancient or modern. As we close this evening, some final thoughts for you to think about. <clears throat> the Bible is inspired of God because, and because it is inspired of God, it originates with Him. Inspired meaning God breathed those things out. Thus, it is inspired, since it's inspired of God, it originates with Him and it began with Him. The Bible literally, its words literally go back to Him, back to God. And if those words go back to God, since the Word of God originates, since the Word originates with God, it can be trusted and it should be obeyed, right? If the Word originates with God, and it does, it can be trusted. And if it can be trusted, then it should be obeyed. You know, that's where man today runs into problems. That word, obeyed. 
Because obey implies submission. Obey implies changes. Obey implies God has the pattern for man to live and mankind does not. You know, we find there in the book of Proverbs the same idea, right? There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is a way of death. God's inspired word gives man the actual correct and proper way, doesn't it? We go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. There the writer tells us, listen, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Or some translations say, the whole duty of man, right? Which means all that matters is following God faithfully. That's what the Bible tells us to do. And therein lies the problem for the, for the world, is following after God. This evening, as you think about this idea of inspiration, the evidence, just a very brief and just a few things we've seen, and what it means concerning the Word of God, and what it, how that affects us today. Since we can find, friends, trust me, we can go look at a whole lot more and make it so clear that you'll be bored of the topic by the time we're done because inspiration has so many proofs it's ridiculous and that there's the idea of going against and fighting against them or how anyone could but as we dig deeper into inspiration you'll find there's proofs that you'll have to keep on digging to find more and more and more because they're there it's like panning for gold you'll find more and more and more the deeper you dig the more you'll find Throughout history, those who have tried to speak against God and His Word, not all, but many, have come to believe in it. Lee Strobel, who's not a New Testament Christian, but he was a journalist for a long time and a critic of the Bible, dove in and didn't believe in the Creator. By the time he was done, he did. He didn't obey the Gospel as we find it in the New Testament, but he knew and understood that there was a God and he requires certain things of him. And that's just one example. When we think about the inspiration of the Bible, it moves us to, to remember where that where this book comes from. We understand we have man's translation of it today. But friends, we can go very easily look at the original Greek and look at all those things and find the word just as it was recorded. And see, we find so much still the very same today. Translations differ, but when we compare a good translation to the Greek, they don't differ that much. And the message is the same. Obedience to God or eternal punishment being separated from God. This evening, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage in any way. We'd love to do so. That's going to be said and sing the song that's been selected.